Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 1956 is a new history podcast released by me, Zach Twomley. You may know me from my other history podcast, When Diplomacy Fails, but if not, hello. And welcome to this new history podcast. If you'd like to know what 1956, the eventful year, is all about, what makes it special, and why I'm doing it, then stay tuned. final seconds ticked away, and 400,000 eager faces focused their gaze on the roof of the Times Tower in New York's Times Square. At 20 seconds to midnight, a ball of electric light was lowered ever so gradually from the top of the flagpole. The plan, as everyone expected, was for this magnificent contraption to become illuminated just at the right time, to signal the fact that the new year of 1956 had arrived. With eight seconds left on the clock, though, it was clear that something was wrong. A faulty circuit breaker cut out the power to the display, and just as the crowds were reaching the apex of their cheering, darkness covered the tower and the awaiting crowd. A stunned gasp was let out, followed by a disappointed groan, and it wasn't until 15 minutes into 1956 that the lights welcoming the new year were restored and the technological marvel was lit up for all to see. The moment had descended into something of a farce, but the cheering followed nonetheless. 150 miles north of Tokyo, during a Shinto ceremony at Yihiko Shrine, it wasn't farce but tragedy which characterised the proceedings, as a human stampede crushed to death more than a hundred unfortunate pilgrims. In Madrid, General Francisco Franco opened his New Year's address and his 18th year as Spain's dictator by insisting that the dangers that threaten the world are greater than ever. In London, Prime Minister Anthony Eden gave assurances that we shall be doing everything we can to reduce tension between the nations at every time and at every opportunity. London's Times noted the need for courage in the face of upcoming crises which were undoubtedly in store for us. Many miles from London, at the pulpit of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Reverend Martin Luther King addressed parishioners with an encouraging message to the effect that there was no better way to begin the new year of 1956 with the firm belief in a powerful God. Mindful of the fact that a boycott of the city's buses was now entering its second month, King urged his congregation to remember that root of the Christian faith, that good would triumph over evil in the end. King concluded his message by encouraging his flock 
in their struggle against evil. God is able, King said. Don't worry about segregation. It will die because God is against it. The French knew a thing or two about segregation, too. In their troubled Algerian possession, the white French settlers enjoyed far greater rights and freedoms than the native population, and discontent had been bubbling over for some time both here and in Morocco and in Tunisia. The second last day of 1955 saw 20 rebels killed in one province of Algeria, while a French operation in a mountainous region of Morocco killed 50. If the European and Muslim African populations could not find a way to live together in peace and mutual respect, commented the French Premier, then they would be condemned to die together with rage in their hearts. A guest of the Egyptians at this time was Josip Broz Tito, who was wined and dined by the ambitious Egyptian general-turned-statesman Gamal Abdel Nasser. Tito made clear in an annual message of his own delivered from Cairo that the people of Africa were striving to consolidate their independence to govern themselves, while he condemned the so-called civilizing mission of the Europeans as a smokescreen for imperialism and greed. Yet the Yugoslav leader ended on a positive note, opining that an era of peaceful settlement of international problems has set in. War is being repudiated as a means of solving disputes. Even Moscow was willing to talk of peace, as the Soviet premier, Nikolai Bulganin, found it appropriate to declare during the course of his New Year's address that goodwill and mutual cooperation could make great progress towards putting an end to the Cold War. Later on in the evening of the 31st of December, Bulganin and party first secretary Nikita Khrushchev hosted a lavish dinner party, attended by over 1,200 guests. Gathering together in the Kremlin's humongous St. George Hall, food and drink moved freely among these leaders of Soviet society, and enthusiastic displays of dancing, of toasts in favour of peace accompanied by stirring music, characterised the proceedings. Thousands of miles away in Key West, Florida, President Eisenhower relaxed in less excited circumstances as he continued to recuperate following his heart attack the previous September in 1955. On that day, the US stock market took a nosedive. $14 billion was wiped off the Dow Jones in mere hours in the worst day of trading since the outbreak of the Second World War. In spite of his four-pack-a-day habit and the mistake of his doctor, who believed the president's heart episode was only indigestion, Eisenhower survived, and he had been essentially instructed to take it easy by his doctor for the remainder of the year. But Eisenhower couldn't rest too easy, because it was nearly election time, and the 64-year-old believed that he had another run in him. 1956 was thus to be an important year for his political ambitions, and for the Republican Party that he led. Eisenhower must have therefore hoped that it would be a comparatively quiet one in international affairs. Less than three years after the conclusion of the Korean War, the world remained in the grip of the two prominent ideologies, that of communism on the one hand and democracy on the other. While two ideological camps remained in place, the balance within them had endured some changes since 1945. 
The People's Republic of China had definitively arrived, just as Western Europe's communist parties were becoming more marginalised, and decolonisation was giving fresh opportunities to the Soviets and Americans in Africa and the Middle East to spread their message and influence around. In conflict with the notions of decolonisation and fresh markets were the old ideas of empire, still clung to by the French in Algeria and the British in portions of Africa and the Middle East, not to mention the Soviet government, which held much of Eastern Europe and Eurasia in an empire in all but name. While the decade of the 50s had been opened by the Korean War, and the Cold War had seemingly come into view with that conflict, the rest of the decade often receives scant attention in favour of the more heated events of the 1960s, as the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassination, and the intensification of the Vietnam War characterised American policy, with the Soviets distracted above all by the revolutionary events of Prague in 1968. The narrative usually presented is that the 1950s represented a somewhat drab interlude between the heroic resistance of the 1940s and the vibrant protest movements of the 1960s. Even the wars which were fought, such as in Korea between 1950-53, to ended unsatisfactorily. If this is true, then 1956 is a year which stands out defiantly from this easy classification, as a period of time lit up with revolution, genuine political change, political and military humiliation, grand conspiracy and terrible, bitter tragedy. It stood out to me as a watershed moment, both in the history of the Soviet Union and in the British perception of itself on the world stage. In both these cases, the cynical power base, which Soviet power was built upon, was exposed. Only through brute military force alone could the eastern satellites be kept in line. Similarly, the scales fell from the eyes of the British government when they were made painfully aware of their helplessness in the face of American economic coercion. The British Empire, for this reason, is often marked as ending once and for all in 1956, while it had ended, for all practical purposes, with the release of India. But 1956 was the moment, it is said, when the reality of the two-superpower situation in world affairs was bitterly accepted in London. Fifteen years later, British policy would redefine itself in its successful application to the European Union. As Winston Churchill had always hoped, Britain could lead the third group of the world by empowering and partaking in deals and agreements with its European neighbours. The European Union application represented the culmination of this policy, sort of. But the Suez Crisis was also the moment that this European bubble burst, albeit in a different way. Britain and its friends, the Suez Crisis seemed to indicate, would not be able to pursue aggressive, independent policies without first consulting their American allies, especially when the consequences of such actions impacted everyone and drew attention away from other crises. However, London, Paris, Bonn and Rome were more than welcome to band together to meet the challenge posed by the Soviets and by their Eastern European counterparts by devising a better system than their neighbours who were lost behind the Iron Curtain. Accepting this meant that the ship had sailed on British preeminence, and this was a difficult pill for the British to swallow. No less difficult were the many French pills which would have to be swallowed, especially as its former mortal enemy in the Germans became fastened ever more tightly to both NATO and to the Western European Union, a forerunner of the 
modern European Union. 1956 is a year with many layers then, guys, but it is also a year of two main story arcs, which overlap and conflict with one another in several fascinating respects. It is my task, and of course my pleasure, to unwrap this year and bring its figures, events and issues to you. I don't claim to have any agenda in this mission, although I'm sure everyone says that before they start any projects like these, but my aim above all is to explain the year of 1956 to you as something of a watershed moment in the 20th century. I want you all to grasp why it mattered, I want you to see that it did matter, and above all I want you to be interested and captivated by what goes on in the next 30 or so episodes. If you like your 20th century history, if you like your Cold War history, if you like your obscure diplomatic history, then 1956 is the series for you. In his book 1956, The World in Revolt, Simon Hall wrote that, 1956 saw ordinary people all across the globe speak out, fill the streets and city squares, risk arrests, take up arms and lose their lives in an attempt to win greater freedoms and build a more just world. It was an epic contest that would transform the post-war world. High time then that the story of this remarkable year was told in full. It should be said that we won't quite be telling the story in full, largely because our narrative will focus in two broad directions, as I said. That is, on the Soviet Union's post-Stalin thaw and the revolts which resulted, and in the other direction, we'll be looking at the road to the Suez Crisis and the consequences which it threw up. It is entirely possible that we may miss elements of the story which 1956 provides, but we will do our best. It should be emphasised, to those unfamiliar with the formula of when diplomacy fails, that politics, diplomacy and international affairs will be our primary aims. These will be the lenses through which we view the events of 1956. I have managed to get very interested in national revolutions and certain figures during the course of this series, but all factors in the story will be presented in the context of the wider international picture which 1956 painted. Of course, you may have some questions about the way in which we're going about this whole project, such as, you know, why did we set up a new podcast feed to hold these initial episodes? To get some answers to these and a few other questions, Listen on. You see, while 1956, or 1956, the eventful year to give it its full title, is the title of a new series, a new podcast series, if you weren't aware, it is also the name of the latest exclusive series in When Diplomacy Fells' Extra Feed, which is available in its entirety for all supporters of When Diplomacy Fells who pledge $5 or more a month. 1956, the eventful year, follows Louis XIV's Arms and Armies and the Jan Sobieski biography as an example of a completely original series which has only been made possible thanks to the generous and greatly appreciated support of my patrons. Series like these are my way of giving back to those of you that support me monetarily, and in 1956, I believe we have something really special. Hopefully after listening to this episode here, you'll be inclined to agree. So first things first, why have I decided to make a brand new podcast feed for these teaser episodes for 1956? Considering all the song and dance one must go through to launch a new podcast, why have I essentially launched a new podcast which will only be fully available for patrons? 
Well, the short answer is that this looks tidier, at least it does in my opinion, and it won't interfere with the schedule of the Korean War as some episodes of this series are made available. The long answer, if you're ready for this, is that I just like the idea of having a member's own series sitting in a different area of the web to When Diplomacy Fails, because I feel it serves as a constant reminder, an advertisement if you like, of what I'm aiming for in When Diplomacy Fails Towers. By having some episodes of 1956 constantly available for free, any visitors who arrive by chance or by design in this location will always know how to access more content, more episodes, and more of 1956. I'm not entirely sure if it is a more effective model than the old ways of doing things, but it is one I've had my eye on for some time. I know for a fact that my podcast peers in Cam and Ray, for example, follow this formula, so I figured I'd try my hand at it too. I also plan to follow this formula with the Age of Bismarck series as well, as I imagine it to be a great and straightforward way to link would-be supporters to the show. Technically, of course, this means that When Diplomacy Fails has given birth, as it were, and that we now have a new podcast under the When Diplomacy Fails umbrella, or When Diplomacy Fails brand, whatever you want to call it. But the truly new podcast, the one I've been talking about for some time, won't be arriving until the 18th of May, 2018, and that'll be called Poland Is Not Yet Lost. Poland Is Not Yet Lost will be completely free to all listeners and patrons alike, whereas 1956, the eventful year, comes with some caveats. If I could be so bold, to those that do support us at the $5 level and higher, and even those that don't, I would really appreciate it if you could plonk down some reviews of 1956 here. You should know that I've received great feedback regarding my Patreon series over the last year that I have been releasing, but I do feel that listeners don't have any real way to know independently if the stuff in the extra feed is actually any good, and yeah, if they should actually pay that $5 a month. This way, reviews will tell the tale of what listeners are missing out on, and it makes it more likely, I hope, that they will sign up. This at least is how I imagine things proceeding. I'm not going to lie and say that I don't want many new history friends to become patrons with the release of 1956. Since When Diplomacy Fails is partially my job now, it only makes sense that I want 1956 to draw some listeners in and encourage others to pay. I don't think that this is a particularly dishonest policy, and at least if you aren't interested, you're still able to get a teaser and see if you like it or not. So what is 1956, the eventful year? Well, there's no simple answer for what this series actually is or what I want to achieve by releasing it. Instead of trying to persuade you to listen or outline loads of detailed, small thesis-type aims, I think it makes more sense to run through a few examples of what 1956 means in the context of the 20th century. To put it in a less boring way, I think I should explain what it is that made me feel compelled to make a series that examines the events of only a single year in such a significant century. If none of the following characters, events, or debates interest you, then fair enough. But the more I researched and learned about this incredible year, the more I came to believe that it holds something for everyone. So to begin with, in February 1956, the Soviet Union's leading figure in Nikita Khrushchev delivered a speech in which he denounced much of what Joseph Stalin had done, and he criticised heavily the concept of a cult of personality. Stalin, for the record, had built around himself a cult of personality so multi-layered and all-consuming, but on the other hand so ridiculous and nauseating, 
that it had come to dominate his life and rule. Communism or Marxism or even Leninist doctrine were not as important in the Soviet Union as much as Stalinism. Stalinism can be defined and presented in a whole load of different ways, but to the person of Joseph Stalin, Stalinism meant unflinching loyalty and unwavering obedience to every decree, every pronouncement, and every opinion of the Man of Steel. This demand for obedience and the cult Stalin built to ensure it can be explained by several factors, not least Stalin's inherent lack of legitimacy at taking over from Lenin, a man who by no means wished to see Stalin succeed him or even liked him. But Stalin did succeed him whether Lenin liked it or not, and Stalin then went on to craft a system of state control, of stunning leader worship, and of institutionalised terror on a scale never before imagined possible in Russia or in the satellites which came to border Moscow after 1945. Stalin's legacy was akin to a bear that Khrushchev would have to wrestle with then, because even as Khrushchev believed it was necessary to take apart the worst excesses of what Stalin had made, he wanted to preserve the aspects of the system which enabled the Soviet Union to keep its satellites in check, to maintain a hold on the mantle of superpower regardless of the consequences, and of course to police its own people in the name of the greater good. Much like every other figure who was forced to succeed a formidable predecessor, stumbled, contradicted himself and ultimately would be forced out of power by his underlings and rivals. This is because while Khrushchev appreciated the difficulties and dangers in denouncing the cult of Stalin while attempting to hold on to its fruits, he was terminally unable from the get-go to actually devise a solution to the question of what would happen if the reformist message, the policy of de-Stalinization, the thaw or whatever else you wanted to call it, provoked within the Soviet system a, a backlash of unprecedented passion and anger. Khrushchev, to put it bluntly, was not prepared for the consequences of his own actions, as events in both Poland and Hungary would demonstrate. Perhaps one of his sole sources of comfort came from the fact that, as unprepared as he was for the consequences of his actions, the Western Allies were even less prepared for what would follow an apparently sealed Egyptian deal. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Suez Crisis is that other tumultuous event of 1956 which characterised the year as one of great and terrible events rather than as one of moderately important Soviet activity. What the Anglo-French plotters failed to fully consider was the American angle. 
More specifically, what the Eisenhower administration would do or say once the Anglo-French-Israeli conspiracy was brought to light. In the event, military disaster would be twinned with political humiliation for the British and French, who were forced to withdraw in the face of the threats and coercions of their American ally. That British paratroopers were landing in Egypt at the same time as Soviet tanks were crushing Budapest is another fascinating takeaway from this incredible year. The two major storylines, that of Soviet troubles with life after Stalin and of the Western Road to the Suez Crisis, will be tackled separately, but both storylines will intertwine at times. The sheer differences of the two narratives mean that it would not really make sense for us to simply approach 1956 from a chronological point of view as some authors have done. Instead, it makes more sense to me to hit each story arc individually, and this I have attempted to do in two 15-episode blocks, which together make up 30 episodes, but we'll see how we get on with this model. The first part, or block, will examine the Soviet experiences, and the second will examine the Western story, i.e. the Suez Crisis. These different parts will be marked in the feed as one point whatever number of the episodes it is, if they happen to be the first part, and two point whatever episode it is, if they relate to the second part. This structure will hopefully make everything clearer when attempting to track down individual episodes or follow along with the story. At least, this is the plan. When 15 episodes of the first part are over, you'll be greeted with an introduction to the world which housed the Suez Crisis, and then the next 15 episodes will be released. As per the terms of the extra feed, we'll be having about an hour of additional content each month. In other words, two episodes released. With the exception of the first month that the series is released in February, where four episodes will be released to get us in the swing of things. Isn't that nice? To those listening here in the newly crafted feed, you'll note that an overall introduction episode, this episode here, and the introduction to the Soviet part of the series are currently available, as are the first and second episodes. Once we reach the second part of 1956, that part which looks at the Suez Crisis, listeners will then be able to access the introductory episode to that part, as well as the first two episodes, for free. Does that sound sensible? Does it make sense? I hope so, but if not, trust me, it'll all come together once we get going. In a further bit to distinguish between parts 1 and 2, we will have a different song as the introduction track for each. In the first part... Gloomy Sunday by Paul Whiteman will serve the purpose of getting us in the mood. Gloomy Sunday is a song with an interesting story. It was developed in the 1930s and its meaning is still debated today, but it was composed by Hungarian pianist and composer Rejo Seres and published in 1933. A year later, Hungarian poet Laszlo Havor wrote his own lyrics to the song and referenced the death of his lover in those lyrics and this is the version of the song that came to be the accepted version, recorded in Hungarian by Pal Kalmar in 1935. Less than a year later, American pop jazz superstar Paul Whiteman and his band performed their own version, and it is this immensely catchy, but still inherently gloomy version of the song that you can hear in the background right now, that I'll be using, rather than the more famous version by Billie Holiday from... 1941 that you may or may not have heard of.
When we move to part two, we'll be using another song with several credits and artists to its name. Lay Down Your Arms was released in 1956 by Ake Gerard and Leon Langren, who penned the original Swedish version before it was adopted by the Cordettes in the United States and more famously by Anne Shelton in the UK. Sheldon's version of the song is the one we'll be using because it held on to the number one spot in Britain for 14 weeks and because it was somewhat looked down upon by the British government at the time since the song held its place during the course and aftermath of the Suez debacle. British leaders were concerned that the song would reduce morale among British soldiers and perhaps even convince them to lay down their arms if they indeed needed any convincing. Yet, Sheldon had sang to British soldiers during the Second World War, so perhaps her track record spoke for itself in this regard. Because the Anglo-French angle will be a highly important one, I felt it appropriate to take Sheldon's version, often just referred to as the British version, as our baseline. As far as audio clips go, historical audio clips, you should know that we won't be as clip-heavy as we were during the Korean War, but I certainly have a few clips stored up that I'll be making use of from time to time, so keep an ear out for those. Now that you know why we're doing this series, how we're doing it and what it will sound like, I think there's not much left for me to do other than to say welcome, and I really hope you enjoy what we've got in store for you guys. The introduction episode for part one is out now because you always need more introductions in your life and you know the way I work at this stage, and episode one and two of part one, in other words episodes one and two of the Soviet part of 1956 are waiting to be feasted upon by you all, so don't wait. To my lovely patrons listening now, you get four episodes and two more next month, so what are you waiting for? Have yourself a listen to this brand new content, made possible by your generous support over this last year. Remember guys, the rest of this beast of a series is only a few clicks away, but even if you decide that 1956, the eventful year, isn't your thing, I'd still like to say a huge thanks in any case for listening in and for listening to the end of this introduction episode, past all of my ramblings. My name is Zach, this is 1956, and I'm very excited to say that I'll be seeing you all soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.